Luke 7, picking up where we were last week, verse 11 to 17. So we're in Luke 7, verse 11 to 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the buyer stood still, the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, last week we talked about the power of God, amen? Today we're going to hopefully spend some time talking about the compassion of God. And it made me think about when I was a kid, my mom and dad slept in a room together. It's a bad start of the story. Some nights, if, if you had a bad dream, you'd want to go get mom. But the problem was dad was closer to the door. And if you woke dad because you had a bad dream, your bad dream would pale in comparison to the reality that would come out of bed. So my sister and I would, we developed an art where you'd come in low. And you'd, you'd immediately, when you hit the foot of the bed, you'd lay down. And then you'd crawl, and you'd come up on my mom's side of the bed. And as you came up on her side of the bed, you know, you just lift your head up to her eye level. How many pastors do this in their preaching? <laughs> and you'd get really close and you'd stare. And somehow there was a magical power we had as kids. And she'd wake up. But when she woke up every single time, failed none, ah! and we'd cover her mouth. And my dad would not wake up, or so we thought. And my mom would take us back to our room. Now, if there was a home invasion, if you heard glass breaking, if there was a fire, you just got dad, right? But if you had a bad dream, you had to get to mom. Who's God more like? My dad, who's good with a home invasion? Or my mom, who'd help you with a bad dream? Thank you. Now, the problem is too often we see God in his power and we think he's good with big trauma. But does God really care affectionately and compassionately. Well, the text says Jesus had compassion. Amen? What does that mean, Jesus had compassion? He was, I like how you put that. I was going to say, I like how you put that. Where'd you hear that? He was heartbroken over the woman. He had deep compassion and sympathy from the innermost parts. I mean, isn't that a beautiful way to think of the Lord? Imagine it was actually true. Well, it is true. God is a God of emotion. God feels. Jesus wept, right, Renee? Do you remember Jairus' daughter? We'll see her in, in a few weeks. But in, in Mark's account, in Mark 5.41, Jesus says, Talitha kumi. He says, a little girl arise. You know what Jesus is saying to this little girl? He walks up to her, God incarnate, rubs her head and says, honey, it's time to wake up. Yeah, just picture the, the affection, the emotion, the compassion of God. He says to the woman here, don't weep. But what he's really saying in our vernacular is, oh, dear woman, there's no need to cry like that. 
Let, let, me, let me show you who I am and why I came. There's no need to hopelessly cry. Don't cry. I, mean, I, I think too often we think of God like we think of us watching a, a rerun of a sporting event that was exciting. So you watch the Eagles Super Bowl from two years ago. You watch it live as an Eagles fan. You're all excited, right? Remember that game? Evelyn face-painted herself. Now, but you get all excited. You're watching the ebbs and flows of the game. You don't know how it turns out. At the end of the game, the Eagles win. Yay! But when you watch the rerun, you already know how it ends. So you might enjoy it, but how excited can you get? It's muted, amen? Well, doesn't God know the end from the beginning? So how can God get excited? Because God's not like you. God has affection and emotion and joy. He's tied his joy to your joy. And that's why he says, do not cry. That's why he says, talitha kumi. That's why Jesus wept. And in Matthew 9, 36, or Mark 8, 2 through 4, he looks at crowds, believers, non-believers alike, and he has compassion. He feeds them because they're hungry. He cares for them because they have need, not because they're simply saved, but if he has compassion on those he hasn't saved, how much more so upon those he has chosen to save? When God looks at you as his child, do you know how he sees you? Not just as a technically saved person, but a dear and precious child for whom he has much affection, compassion, and care. Do, do you think of God that way? Or do you think you can come to God when someone is, is giving you a major crisis? God, help, my child's dying. But certainly you don't come to God and go, God, I'm, I'm just depressed. Because he would say, oh, shut up. God forbid you ever think that way about him. God cares about every single aspect of your life because he's a God of great compassion. Jesus had compassion. I mean, just Stop! He had compassion on this woman. What did she have to merit compassion from God? She was a vile sinner on her own. But Jesus had compassion. Now watch this. The reaction. So Jesus speaks to a dead body. Why? By definition, a dead body can't hear, right? Why would Jesus talk to a dead body? You ever think about that? It's a dead body. He cannot communicate. Two reasons. Number one is so the people would know what was about to happen. But number two is because he's God and God creates by his word. He's not saying, hey, would you do this for me? He's giving a command. And he says... Arise! And a dead body got up. Why would he cause the body to get up? Power and compassion. But how did the people react? What, did, what happened to them? Help you out. Verse 16. First two words. Fear, Fear seized them. Why? Well, because they had seen the power of God. They're, they're, not, they're not calling Jesus God. Don't misunderstand what you're reading in that text. They're declaring they saw the power of God and they called Jesus a great prophet. Why do they call him a great prophet? Why am I asking you all these questions when I'm just going to answer them? Should I just skip the question part and give you the answer part? They knew 1 Kings 17, they knew 2 Kings 4, and they knew Deuteronomy 18. 
You say, what are those? Well, see here, let me point this out as a side note. They had better Bible knowledge than you did. But Bible knowledge doesn't equate to salvation. In fact, maybe a midweek thought at some point, often those who seem to have the most Bible knowledge are the most dangerous people in a church. Because you assume since they quote scripture, they know what they're talking about, but if they can't land scripture in context, they're the most dangerous people you'll ever meet. You ever run into these type of people? Don't assume because someone can quote the Bible they love Jesus. And don't assume if someone loves Jesus and can quote the Bible that they know what they're talking about. You must land it in context. These people knew the Bible. So what did they call Jesus? A great prophet. Why? Well, they knew Deuteronomy 18. You say, what's that? that? Read it. They had 1 Kings 17. You say, what's that? Read it. They had 2 Kings 4. You say, what's that? Why are you keeping saying it? These are people who read their Bible, who memorized their Bible, who studied their Bible. And they were going to hell because they didn't understand the context of what they were reading in their Bible. I can't express how important a side note that is because we as a church can run into this. Someone comes in quoting the Bible. And you think, oh my gosh, they, they must love Jesus so much. They're, they're so mature in their faith. They, they know there's a book called Zephaniah, for the love of God. There's a book called Zephaniah. Listen, you must land it in context. Don't assume I'm mature because I know more Bible. Assume I'm mature because I follow Jesus. Assume I'm mature because I can put the Bible in context. Assume I'm mature, not because I try to impress you by what I know, but I try to impress you with the reality of who God is. Do you see that? Bible knowledge ain't nothing. All I do every Sunday is plagiarize the Word of God. I'm a dumb man with a smart God and a book. That's all we got. So don't fall into the trap of thinking just because you know a lot of Bible that you're very mature, or just because someone else knows a lot of Bible they're very mature. Let the Bible be put in context. As a professor of mine once said, a Proof text without a pretext. Never mind, I'm going to let that go. 1 Kings 17. Would you flip over there? Let's see what these people knew. And I bet some of you know this story. You know the story of the widow of Zarephath? Lady had a son. She was a widow. There was a famine. She's running out of food. My man Elijah shows up. He says to the lady, so God sends him to Zarephath. Commands her to go to a widow in verse 10. He went, verse 11. She was going, well, he says to her, hey, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he said to her, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He says, I'm thirsty and hungry, help me out. And you know what the widow said? So Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She says, I got nothing. I got one meal left for me and my boy and we're going to die. You want me to feed you? Man, who are you? And Elijah says to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards you make something for yourself and your son. Is this a mean, nasty, selfish guy? No. So she did, right? And the Lord, so, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to what? According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. It's amazing what God has done here, right? Lady has everything going for her, right? Smooth sailing ahead. Well, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Said another way, he died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Why what? What does her sin have to do with her son's death? You say, Pastor, what does this have to do with Luke 7? Oh, hang on. What does her sin have to do with her son's death? This woman understood two things, corporate identity and sin. Family and accountability and effectuality among one member of a family to another. This lady did not have a personal relationship with God. She was part of a corporate structure in a family. Now listen to this. When you're saved, you're not saved to a personal relationship with God. You are personally saved to have a relationship with God in the context of a corporate structure. But in a corporate structure, just as this woman's sin would have an effect upon her son, potentially to the point of death, listen closely, your sin in the context of a church family is intended to have an effect upon the rest of the church family, just as your holiness in the context of a church family is to have an effect on the whole church family. Said another way, when one part suffers, all should suffer. When one rejoices, all should rejoice. This is a, a corporate context this woman got. And she knew sin, and she knew that her sin was before God and had to be dealt with and paid for. And she thought God decided to have her sin paid in part through her son's death. Totally just on God's part. Do you understand that? Totally just on God's part. She knew she was a sinner. She knew God was holy. She understood a corporate identity. And she says, why did you, man of God, show up? Was it so God would remember my sin and kill my boy? That's what happened, right? But is that what happened? Because God spoke through Elijah. And God says through Elijah, by raising her son, I'll show you this in a second, he says, no, your son did not die for your sin, dear woman. Do you see this? Elijah took the boy and he cried, verse 20, he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, you've brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Yes, God did kill her son. Don't miss that. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And here's what God is saying. Woman, you are a sinner. Woman, I have every right as a just and holy God to take your son's life because of your sin. But woman, your son did not die so that I might get a payment for your sin, because there's more payment due. Your son died that I may show my power and my compassion and grace. Because, woman, your son didn't die for your sin. I'll raise him from the dead because I'm powerful too and gracious to do it, says the Lord through Elijah. Fast forward. Jesus comes to a widow whose son has died, and he says to the widow, arise, and the crowd thinks that's just like Elijah. Look at the power of God. Look at the grace of God. There's a great prophet in our midst. The power of God is on display. But what they miss is this. 
Jesus didn't pray to God for God to raise the boy. Jesus spoke to a dead body, and the dead body rose because Jesus is God. And just as he said way back in 1 Kings to the woman, no, your son did not die for your sin, in Luke 7, all the way to 24, watch what the Lord says in his compassion to the woman all the way back in Zarephath. Listen to this. He says through Elijah, they're not fully seen until Luke 24. He says, woman, your son has not died for your sin. No. Woman, my son shall die for your sin. Do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Elijah went and God through Elijah raised the widow Zarephath's son in his grace and power, but pointing forward to a work he would do in the future, which is begun in Luke, the beginning of Luke. We saw Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort, oh my people. And we get all the way to Luke 24, and Zarephath's widow's answered question is answered more fully. So she says here, You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. No. I've come to bring your sin to remembrance and cause the death, says the Lord, of my son, so that your sin may be forgotten, no, remembered no more. Do, do you see the compassion of God? You sit and you read that first Kings and you're like, well, that wouldn't be fair for God to kill someone's kid for their sin. Really? Go back and read Exodus. Remember the 10th plague? But what you miss is the grace and compassion and mercy of God on display here. You guys track with me there? So they have Bible knowledge. They knew Bible stories. They had no Bible context to understand 1 Kings 17 nor 2 Kings 4. Same thing nor Deuteronomy 18, which speaks of the great prophet of God to come. Hmm. So here's what I want you to get out of this. I'll do this real easy and real short. How powerful, it won't be short, how powerful is God? I mean, ju just think about how powerful is God? Didn't, didn't Mary say, with God all things are possible? Or the Lord technically said that in Scripture, right? What, what, what is too hard for God to do? Nothing. Our God is so big, our God is so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. It's true. So why do we fail to trust in the power of God? Why, why do we think, God, listen, I... I don't need your word because I'm not that interested in knowing who you are or that interested in knowing what you're revealing to me and promising to me and commanding to me because I'm pretty smart on my own. We say that, I just, I don't have time to read the Bible. I'm just not interested in reading the Bible. I just don't really care. I'll go to church and I'll hear Pastor John preach and that's enough for me. What? The, don't. Don't. We're going through seven verses a week. You'll never be fed enough to survive. But listen to me. How powerful is God? All-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-present. But here's the catch. That's not a comfort by itself. That just means God can whoop your butt. That's all that means. God is the strongest God because he's the only God and he sustains everything and he can destroy everything whenever he wants, however he wants, whyever he wants, and there's nothing you can do about it. Is that good news? That scared the boots off of me. But this God who shows his power in providence, this God who shows his power in raising 
a body from the dead. This God who's all-powerful is compassionate, merciful, gracious. He cares. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God always works in just the right way, at just the right time, in just the right place for his glory. And you're good if you're saved. Do you understand that? Do you know what time Jesus died? Who, who knows the answer to that question? Uh, see, someone's on it. The perfect time. The Bible says at the right time. In Galatians it says in the fullness of time. Do you know God does everything perfectly? Perfect timing, perfect place for the perfect people, perfectly for his glory as he perfectly cares for you. Now, if you just know about the power of God, you're not going to have a lot of comfort and you're not going to really trust God particularly well. Because you think God commands you to do it, so you better do it or you'll die, but you didn't do it in the past and you didn't die, so why do it now? Just figure it out, right? So if God says, do this, your reaction is either legalistic. Legalistic people go, oh, I better do that or he's not going to love me. Cheap grace people go, I'm not going to do it. What does it matter? I'm saved by grace through faith. And neither one of those people really understand the gospel. Someone who understands the gospel, who understands the goodness, kindness, grace, and compassion of God, as well as the power and holiness of God, says, God says do it, so I'm going to do it because he said do it. But I'm going to do it knowing that it's for his glory and my good. Why wouldn't I do it? Because if I don't want to obey God, what I want to do is of the flesh, and of the flesh always leads to destruction and, and sadness and grief and loss. So why would I not do what a good and perfect and kind and gracious and compassionate God calls me to? Do you see the comfort there? Right? So let's say that, that you can't pay your bills. And let's say it's not because you've been doing online gambling for the last six months and you ran out of money. That's a problem. God does discipline those he loves. But let's say that, that you were injured and you, you haven't been able to earn money and you can't pay your bills. Well, are you going to trust in God or yourself? You see, God promises to care for you, and he does it in the best ways you walk in his will. And God doesn't intend you to be able to care for yourself at all. First, on a human level, none of us are capable of caring for ourselves independently or individually. And by individually, I mean in the context of a household. We're designed to be cared for corporately, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the will of God, trusting in the wisdom of God, we see the perfect providential care of God put on display every single time. But the power of God isn't where the comfort comes from unless you combine it with the compassion of God. Do you see that? Seven chapters so far in Luke, and Jesus didn't just show up to show us how strong he is. Oh, he's strong. Can you imagine Jesus at an NFL scouting combine? On the bench press, we have Jesus. What's his last name? He didn't have one. All right, we have Jesus. He just gets on the bench press. 7,001, 7,002. You know, the previous record was 48. 7,003. Then he stretches out his left arm and just keeps going. They do the high jump to check his vertical. Where'd he go? 
Hello? I mean, they're, they're, how, how strong is he? We've timed him in the 40. He, wait, he, we didn't say go. How'd you get to the end? It's not about the power exclusively. It's about the compassion. Do you understand the compassion of God? Zephaniah. It's a book. Chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Can you, can you hang on to that? In Christ, God rejoices over you with gladness. He's powerful to care for you perfectly, and he's compassionate to care for you mercifully, so that as you trust in him, your joy will be complete. The world, the flesh, and the devil offer lies. Jesus came to offer truth as the truth and the way and the life. Where in your life are you failing to trust in the wisdom of God and the power of God and the compassion of God? He is worthy because he is all-powerful and all-wise. But listen to me. His power demands your submission. Do you see that? His mercy drives joy in submitting to him. If God was just a nasty God, if he was just just, he would have to be nasty. Let me rephrase that. If God was just just and holy and merciful, without mercy, I should say, just and holy, and he demanded you turn to him and bow the knee and obey him, guess what you have to do? Turn the knee, bow to him, and obey him or be destroyed. But he is gracious and merciful. Why would you not want to turn the knee and bow to God and obey him? Here's the crazy thing. If you're able to stay for Sunday school, don't miss it today, because we're going to talk about this in more detail. But in order to truly love and obey God, you have to hate sin. And sin usually looks pretty good, right? Sin always looks comfortable, comforting, enjoyable, enticing, beneficial. Very few people think, you know what? I'm just going to go get drunk and have an affair today. That sounds awesome. Destroy my marriage, ruin my kids, end up on the streets by myself, have a father-in-law chasing me down with a gun the rest of my life. I'm going to spend my afternoon like that. No. They always start way, way back, a hundred steps before where you're thinking, I'm lonely, or I'm angry, or I'm stopped. Because the devil or the flesh or the world will always offer an enticement that seems good. I want to be rich. Why? Because I want to be recognized. Why? Because I want to be important. Why? Because I want to be loved. Cold, hard, stop. Because God made you that way. But he made you that way so those would be satisfied only in him. Do you see that? Because you were made for a gracious and compassionate God who cares for you. I doubled this up two weeks in a row. You can take it as a memory verse. It's 1 Peter 5, 7. And it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he 
cares for you. I'll give you a little homework on that verse. I hope you notice there's three dots in the front. You might want to put that in context. It fits in context. Don't trust me. Check it out. But I think also of, of second, uh, second Corinthians chapter 1. You know what? Let's just go there. I want to show you this. We can go all through Scripture. We're not going to do that. But go to 2 Corinthians. Look at the beginning of this. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's writing to the church of God that's at Corinth. He says, grace to you and peace, right? And then verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. A God of all comfort? You say, where's Paul coming up with that type of stuff? Well, it's divinely inspired, but you go all the way back to Isaiah. And you flip around and you come to the beautiful chapter of Isaiah 40. And us Jewish kids, we read it a little differently than you Gentiles. We go, Menachem. But look at what it says in English. If you don't love Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Oh, we, we, we can go through this chapter here. But you have a chapter where, where the Lord is showing how he comforts his people. Right, you get down to verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Wait, you've heard that before in John the Baptist, right? He keeps going and he says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. My friends, do you understand who this God is? This God who is, do you see the power of God? Do you see the comfort of God? Do you see the gospel of God? This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Do you know what we have when, when we get to go out and proclaim the gospel? There is no such thing as a comforted person apart from Christ. Kind of like we're talking about with a prayer request, right? The way we should pray for people who don't know Christ is that God would discomfort them in their false comfort so they might be comforted fully in Christ. And our job is simply to have a relationship with that person so that as we see the opportunities where God is discomforting them or convicting them of sin, if you like, we may be able to point them to the reality of who God is, both all-powerful and compassionate beyond your wildest dreams. So how do you land this text? What do you do with this text as brothers and sisters in Christ? Here's the reality. You know, people ask me sometimes, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? I don't know. It's probably a list. But one of the saddest things is, it's a wonder. I, I love what I do. But I think sometimes you could think of it like a, a doctor. If you went to the doctor and you were sick with something and the doctor gave you advice and you refused to take the medicine or the advice and you continued on in the same sickness and affliction because you did nothing with it, what would the doctor do? Kick you out of the practice at some point, right? Pastors, we don't get to kick you out of the practice, nor do we want to because we love you. 
But it's when you see people who don't apply the balm of Gilead to their life and struggle in the same ways, not even realizing how badly they're struggling, and they do it time and time again, and you can't look down on them because you realize you do it yourself in front of them. And you cry out to God to forgive you and help you apply the balm of Gilead, which is a gospel. And here's what I want to point out to you. Where in your life are you failing to submit to the reality of who God is? Where are you managing your life? Said another way, where are you living based on I think or I want? As opposed to God says. Because you're forgetting not only is he all-powerful and worthy of all praise and obedience, but he's compassionate and merciful, and every commandment of God is for your good. Do you understand that? God is not a God who takes joy away from you. God is a God who brings true joy to you. The world offers false joy. Come sleep with me. Come eat with me. Come earn with me. Come do with me. No! Walk with God. Trust in God. So here's how you have to land it. Where are you, listen to this closely, living based on I think or I want, as opposed to God says? You say, but pastor, God doesn't give us direction for every single circumstance in our life. I call you a liar. I point you to 2 Timothy 3.17. You say, what does it say? Read it. It talks about the word of God. And it says that the man of God may be equipped complete for every good work. You hear that? This will equip you to do everything God has called you to. You think you can find the loophole, right? It doesn't exist. It's principles and precepts to be applied to the motive of the heart, discerned in the context of a body of believers, that you may rightly understand the word of God so you not only might not sin against him, but you might joyfully walk with him. Why do you do what you do? Trust God. God loves you. God cares about you. The first thing God commands you to, because God is compassionate to lost people, is turn to me and be saved. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you can do nothing pleasing to me. Acknowledge that I am holy and acknowledge that I will destroy all sin. But then acknowledge that I have sent my son to save sinners. Jesus means God saves. Turn to him and be saved. Well, how do you know if you're saved? Because you get a new heart and you begin to desire to walk with him. But you have to feed and care for that new heart by submitting to the reality of who God is. All-powerful and compassionate beyond your wildest dreams. So would you do me a favor, dearly beloved? Would you spend some time today, would you even spend some time each day this week prayerfully coming before the Lord and asking the Lord to show you where you are living based on I think or I want versus God says? It doesn't mean I think and I want is always wrong, but it means that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. You have to push that through the filter of Scripture to know if what you want matches with what God wants, because God says he will give us the desires of our heart, right? It says that in the Bible, but it says something after. Do you know what it says after? Because see, here's where Bible knowledge will mess you up. The Lord says in his word, he will give you the desires of your heart. So what you desire, you pray and you ask him to give you, and he will because his word says he will. Someone needs to yell out, heretic liar. Because it says he will give you the desires of your heart, but then it goes on to say, when you delight in him. 
Delight yourself in the Lord. You ever think of that as a marvelous command and invitation? God's saying, come on over for a party. I'm having a feast. You're not worthy, but I've made you worthy. Come and eat with me. Actually, you know what? I think he says it a little differently. He says, you guys know the verse? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What's it say? Who knows where we're at in the Bible? Go ahead and flip over there and we'll close here. Then we'll pivot into communion. Revelation. We, we've been all over, haven't we? Zephaniah, Isaiah, Revelation, Luke, 2 Corinthians. So you know this verse, Revelation 3.20, is not a verse intended. It's a verse written to churches. It's a verse written to save people. It's an invitation to intimacy, and it's where we're going to close today. The Lord is speaking to some churches at the beginning of Revelation, and, and it's just downright frightening as you read these. And it's amazing how, how the, the Word of God is timeless. But we'll save that for another time when we preach through the book of Revelation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on, the thr on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's what Jesus is saying. Trust in me. Obey me. Love me. I will care for you perfectly. So imagine you were this dead body laying on a bier. And a man named Jesus, truly human, truly God, walked up and said, it's time to wake up, bud. You hopped up and you looked at him and he looked at you and smiled. And imagine he said, hey, come follow me. Would you? That's called life with Christ. Father, we praise you that in our lives, for those who are saved, you have done something even more incredible, if I could so say, than raising this widow's son. You raised spiritually dead people. You raised us to eternal and everlasting life. Lord God, help us to marvel at the power that you have and the grace and mercy that you have as well. The fact that you did not destroy us in our sin as we deserved, but took our sin upon you, Lord Jesus, and were destroyed, in a sense, in our place. The wrath that was merited by us from you, Lord, was put upon you, Lord Jesus, in our place. Lord Jesus, you lived the perfect life we couldn't. You died the death we deserve because you have the power and the compassion that is wider and deeper than we can ever truly comprehend. You have the power to forgive sin, and you have the compassion to forgive sin by your life. And Lord, if which you were willing to save us by your death, how much more so can we who have been forgiven by you trust in you and rejoice in you through your life? Because, Lord, just as 
as we, in a sense, were buried with you, died with you, we have risen with you as well into new life. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, would you be so gracious as to work mightily in our lives and give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you? Lord, would you cause us to slow down enough that the cacophony of noise of the world being thrown at us in perpetuity might be stopped for a bit so we might hear you? Not because your voice is soft and quiet, but because we are stubborn and hard of hearing. Lord, cause us to hear your word. Give us a delight to trust in your word as we realize more fully who the God of the word is. Lord, as we read in the Psalms this morning during our prayer time, please remind us of how short this life is. Help us to realize that this life is preparation for eternity. Help us to realize the consequentiality of how we live our lives upon others, both brothers and sisters in Christ and upon the lost, but even more so upon the ability to glorify you. Father God, help us, forgive us, strengthen us, guide us, mature us, Cause us to be a bit more like you as you conform us to the image of Christ so that we might live lives that are truly human. Lord God, help us to be a people who know you through your word, by your grace, for your glory, so that we live our lives before a lost world who will be watching us and through us see both the power in compassion of God put on display. For Lord Jesus, when you say, Fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, it is not just you as an all-powerful God who is speaking to us. It is you as a compassionate and gracious and merciful God as well. So Lord, help us to not have a distorted view of who you are through our childhoods, but a true view of who you are through Scripture. A father who can far surpass the need of power for a home invasion, but yet a father who delights in carrying his child back to their room and tucking them in at night, saying, go to sleep, it will be okay. Because with you, Lord God, when you say it will be okay, we can trust that it will because you will make it so. Father, as we come forward to the communion table this morning, I pray that we might be reminded of your invitation in Revelation 3.20, an invitation to eat with you, because that's what we have, Lord Jesus. An invitation to be reminded of the life you lived and the death you died. As we take the bread, Lord, we are reminded that you graciously chose to live the perfect life that we never could, but that we had to. And that in living that life by grace through faith, you credit it to our account. And Lord God, as we drink of the cup, we're reminded that without the shedding of their, the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it's not that your blood was magical, but it's that your life was a perfect sacrifice. So Lamb of God, we pray, 
that as we come and participate of the Lord's Supper today, we would be freshly reminded that on our own we are totally unworthy. But in you, Lord Jesus, we are made fully worthy. And this happened because you had the power to make it occur and the compassion to make it occur as well. So to our great and compassionate and merciful and all-powerful God, we declare that you are the one who deserves all glory, now and forevermore. And we pray that we would live lives worthy of the upward calling that we've received in Christ Jesus for your glory, knowing that as we do, you delight in using it for our good as well. Jesus, in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I invite you, for those who have trusted in Christ, to come down the center, return on the outsides, take the elements in your own time, and we will close with a song and a benediction. So I invite you to come forward. <laughs>